Welcome to Genuine Life Recovery. We're here to help you and your loved ones overcome addictions and other addiction-related mental health challenges. In this show, we dive into the physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual aspects of addiction, mental health, recovery, family dynamics, codependency, and more. You can listen on your favorite app or at jodystevens.org. Genuine Life Recovery is made possible by great friends like Joshua's Heart in memory of Joshua Brent Moore, bringing hope, love, and awareness to those afflicted by addiction online at joshsheart.org and Jody Stevens Productions for commercial voiceover, narration, production, MC, and public speaking online at jodystevens.org. Hey friends, thank you so much for joining me. My name is Jody Stevens. I am joined by Jason Lennox. Jason's done a number of awesome things. He's got a book out. It's called A Perfect Tragedy, Finding Purpose in Pain, Loss, and Addiction. He is an addiction survivor. He found his own recovery after overdosing in 2010. He is a behavioral healthcare executive, founder and owner of some small businesses, uh, professional speaker, um, author, as I mentioned, and is using his platform to just bring recovery information and awareness to thousands of people. So I'm excited you're here, Jason. I, I want you to you know, share your story of addiction and recovery. We're going to talk about the lifelong journey of recovery. We'll get into treatment in general, maybe some leadership stuff, which is super cool because I know you're into that stuff as well. So thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I appreciate the time with you, Jody. I uh, hope your day is going well and hopefully this contributes to it. I know that it will. Whereabouts in the world are you right now? I love how technology brings us together from all over the place. Yeah, I live in a suburb of the Twin Cities, a little town of Hopkins, Minnesota. So um, about 10 minutes west in a town of about 20,000, which is not too far from the way I grew up. So it's a nice little town. I grew up in Alaska. I went to college. I had a best friend who was from Minnesota, and she I could tell the way you said Minnesota. <laughs> and, and and I started talking like her, you know, like after a yeah. while. So I guess it's because I have this empathetic personality, you know. Uh, I know you're doing a lot of great work in the world of recovery. I know you've been sober for a long time. You've written a book, and that's awesome. So I like to mention that first before we dive into these tragic stories, you know. It's always like, hi, we've never met. Let's talk about your deepest, darkest, you know, secrets and stuff like that. But um, give me just kind of like the 10-minute version of your story of recovery. I know that's hard because our stories are long and... It, but, you know, as they say in recovery, kind of where were you, what happened, and where are you now? You know, it's funny that you say that because I I have been asked to speak and try to condense my story in a pitch yeah. that's been seven minutes. And I've also been given two hours to speak to a group yeah, of people. Yeah. And in all cases, I feel like I almost always run out of time just because there's so much passion behind it. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, my, I really, in my book, I outlined three different phases of my life. One was leading up to addiction. It was the first 12 years of my life. And uh, as a young child, I just really struggled with um, mental health and just 
feeling like I wasn't understanding what my purpose was on the planet. I mean, I, I was 10 years old even thinking about how I could uh, kill myself, you know. It, it, I, and I think some of that, you know, I, I came up in a family that was a little bit broken. My dad was um, severely into drugs and alcohol through most of my childhood. And uh, so I was separated from him and my mom had married and we had a little bit of a chaotic upbringing yeah. at times. But I think, you know, I think for me, it was more my perception and the way that I viewed the world. It was not in a good way. And I tended to see those things that were bad, that didn't work, where I didn't fit in, what I didn't have. And so all that just continued to build this anxiety, depression, guilt, worry, feeling like I was never good enough. I just grew up with that. That was really a that's a synopsis of the first 12 years of my life where i just wanted to be like what i thought the other kids were like mm -hmm. and you know of course understandably then by the time i found drugs and alcohol and it started with alcohol and marijuana i i started to hang out with a group of kids that made me feel like i belonged somewhere and not only that but eventually those substances made me feel better I, I didn't have that anxiety. I didn't have that guilt. I felt like I could be a part of this world. And so the, the next 12 years, ironically, there are 12 year sections here. Um, <laughs> the, the next 12 was addiction. And, you know, in the beginning it was experimenting. It was getting into some trouble. I was this kid who got all these, did everything right at school. And I did all I could to, to be a, a good kid. And, you know, as, as I got into um, junior high, early high school years, I started experimenting. But I also started to get all those things that, um, that I longed for as a kid, meaning I had the friends, then I had a girlfriend, then I got like an upgrade as I would probably have considered it then, you know, it just was like next thing I knew, I'm playing sports, I'm the, you know, star football player, and I have all the things I ever would have dreamed of in high school as a junior, sophomore and junior. And I was already a sick person and I was already addicted. And so um, my characteristics and the, the, the way in which I treated people and, you know, my integrity, all those things started falling. And so what that left me with was hurting people. I left a girlfriend, um, turned my back on some friends. And before you knew it, they all went running the other way. So... I'm in 11th grade, I'm a 17-year-old kid, 16, I had everything I ever dreamed of, and then it all went away in a matter of months, and, you know, five or six months later, I lost my dad, he died at 39 from cirrhosis of the liver, the doctors, you know, tried to give him a warning, and yeah. um, so did everybody else, so that really was a turning point, um, losing him, and, and we weren't all that close, you know, throughout my life, but he was still my father, and I had just gotten to know him a little bit better in the prior few years. Um, so lost him, and then my senior year was, I was out on the streets. I got, got the boot from home and was just causing all kinds of trouble. Couldn't get along with anyone. Was homeless. A couple trips in and out of jail. I dropped out of high school. Um, got a woman pregnant, so I just had a whirlwind of last couple of years of high school. 
Uh, I then did the geographical thing and I moved back home <laughs> yeah. to Massachusetts. Wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, and it just doesn't work. We're still there. <laughs> it, it is. And I never could figure out how to get away from myself. And that would change, right? <laughs> yeah. It was like I would drink, I would drink alcohol, and then, yeah. you know, that would get boring for me. And I would think, well, my dad died from this. So. Yeah, I probably shouldn't do it. So then I'd smoke some marijuana, do some of the other drugs, and, you know, at least I wasn't going out, getting in trouble, driving, mm -hmm. drinking. But then that would get boring, and I would convince myself that, well, those are illegal, so I shouldn't do those. I should drink. Anyway, that game I played for a long time. I had a son. You know, I told mm -hmm. you I got a girl pregnant in high school, and mm -hmm. I made a commitment to be there for that boy for the rest of his life because I knew what it was like not to have that and yeah. um, I drove back from Massachusetts and lived in my van actually for a couple months so that I could go see him every day and we ended up getting back together with his mom that didn't work out I was back into heavy drinking when I left that was kind of the end of like my ability to go see him but I wasn't in a in a good place and and I kind of took off from there and never really returned to the picture until I went to treatment and so there was a four-year span age 19 to 23 where I it was that's where the horror stories were right it was in and out of jail um, really severely addicted at that point in that time I just you know anything that I could get my hands on if it was alcohol if it was pills if it was meth if it was coke uh, opiates whatever it was that would stop my brain from thinking because that's mm -hmm. really where my problem was, was yeah. I, I had distorted thinking and I had a hurt heart. My heart wouldn't stop hurting because of all the things that I was doing to the people in my life. And, you know, I knew deep down I was throwing uh, a significant chance at life away. And so I spent four years with no clue how to do anything different. And, you know, I had tried all the things in and out of jail. I, I was good at everything I did as a kid and growing up, so it didn't yeah. make sense that I couldn't figure this out. Um, and it just led me to kind of a hopeless, there's no way out of this life. This is how I'm going to yeah. die, just like my father did. And most days I just woke up and, and welcomed that and even attempted to kind of see the end of that several times. And, you know, I landed in a, a hospital after a, a drug and alcohol overdose and um, back to jail I went for the last time and, and from jail I, I finally reached out to an assessor who had done an intervention on me mm -hmm. I had my mom reached out to her I said I, there's got to be something better than the pain I'm feeling right now because I wanted to yeah. die in the jail cell and so from there um, I went to uh, treatment I went to a residential treatment program they uh, transferred me from the jail to the treatment program and that's kind of where the this side of life began. Wow. And it sounds like you didn't, you knew how to be successful, but you didn't really know how to cope with the success, with the people, with the girlfriend, with life. You had some of the genetics with your dad, but no one teaches us how to cope. I, I always find that interesting. So we get these bizarre coping skills, whether we're trying to treat our anxiety or depression, just not fitting in. Whatever it is, you know, we can we can learn to do some stuff, but it sounds like 
that was the case for you. You just kept trying, you know, f trying to figure it out with the drugs and alcohol. Didn't really have any replacement skills, you know, and you're so young, nobody tells us. I think the thing for me is it took me several years into my own recovery and going through some therapy to really yeah. understand what there was to cope with from the beginning. So not only did I not know how to cope, but I didn't even know any different. And I didn't know that I had all these things that were plaguing me. Yeah. It wasn't until yeah. they were gone that I look back and think, I don't know if I ever felt normal <laughs> from the time I can remember right. feeling. So, right. right. Yeah. That's interesting. And that that's an interesting point. Like we don't even know that we're trying to cope with stuff. Like we even have to figure that out. That's what's so, so crazy about it. Oh my goodness. So, and so you, you had some of the genetic stuff. You went through homelessness as well. When was the turning point for you? Was it the jail? Was it the overdose? Was it, or was it just something more simple? Sometimes we just wake up and we're just something clicks and we're just done, you know? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, um, it's interesting that my experience there never was one of those moments. It, I, I uh -huh. truly believed and was resigned to the idea that this is how I was going to live the rest of my life and I was going to die from drugs and alcohol. Because again, I had tried all the things and I had everybody around me telling me, including judges, police, family, my son, all these external factors saying, Jace, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And then I had all the internal desire, all my heart ever wanted every time I left the jail cell. Just don't come back here. All you got to do is not, you've had two weeks, you've had a week, you've had three days of no, no drugs and alcohol, keep it going. And I couldn't do that. And so I, I never had, I, I even say when I went to treatment, I still didn't believe that there was a different way of life. But I was in so much pain in that jail cell. I was willing to do anything to just get out of that and experience less pain somewhere. I thought, at least in a treatment program, I can walk in <laughs> and out of my room. <laughs> yeah, um, just get me out of here, something different, you know. Yeah, and so I went to treatment, and I, I will say there's a turning point early in my treatment, which is the purpose of, like, a, the, the title of my book is really centered around my grandmother. and. She is the one who kind of hosted this intervention a year and a half prior to my landing and treatment. And I, it didn't go well. I didn't say nice things. I didn't leave there on good terms. And those were really the last words I ever spoke to her. I knew she was sick later, about a year later, the fall before I went to treatment. I took days off of this job I had for a short period of time to go see her and I never made it. So I'm a week into treatment and they come and tell me that my grandma died and I, it just absolutely crushed me because I knew I would never get a chance to repair that damage. And it, it really was the driving factor behind it. I, I, dealing with that pain led me to a chapel. So a couple things happened. It led me to this new spiritual way of living and this different kind of thought process and this prayer thing. And it also served as I never want to experience the loss of someone else or me without that relationship being complete. And, and just thinking of her and the pain I caused and that just that hurt that was there for me sent me on a different path. It, it really, and it's still every day. I just wrote a book. <laughs> the dedication is her. She's in me. She's in me every day operating. 
and I hear I hear that voice and I feel those hugs and so she was a big part of it even after she you know had passed it sounds like there was at that point then some self-reflection and some doing the suggested things whatever those are I find that a lot for people when when they say what finally clicked it's more well I started looking at my behavior and I started listening a little bit more to what people were saying instead of having all my own answers did you find some of that to be true oh i mean talk about desperation beating <laughs> me into a corner where i'm just like okay I, f I don't know i don't have the answers and actually i came to that conclusion years before i made it to treatment uh, my cousin had asked me he's passed away since but when he looked me in the eye on a saturday morning after i've been drinking he said why and he had problems with drinking and drugs so mm -hmm. coming from him it was alarming that he would ask why do you do what you do and I, I didn't answer him with this but in my head I, I said I don't know I don't have the answer I'm, I'm lost and I went on for a few more years to you know with that idea but it was by the time I got the treatment I'm gonna zip it I'm not gonna pretend like I have the answers I'm here to learn and that's what kept me there. The people that were there before me that showed me that it was possible and I listened to their ideas and I listened to the counselors and I started to absorb that there's a possible way of living out here that doesn't include drugs and alcohol. Prior to that, did you try to quit on your own? Did you try to bargain with your addiction? That tends to be a common theme for those listening. Maybe you're trying to quit that you know, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It doesn't always stick the first time. It's just, I mean, you know, sometimes I don't do well trying to lose weight the first time either. So I think we we tend to heap shame on ourselves with addictions, but not other things where, you know, I mean, you're, you're using a substance to try to cope for so many years. Quitting's going to be trial and error too, but there is, there is, I mean, it did eventually click. You know, it did eventually quit because you didn't give up i mean did you find you were trying to quit a lot and bargaining and playing that whole game or was it sort of a one and done no you know uh, the bargaining was there for a long time and i'll tell you when it was most prevalent every time i walked out of a jail cell and most <laughs> of the time my my cousin actually was the administrator of the jail so it was very embarrassing and shaming oh. to see her each time that i was there and then as i walked out it was the walk of shame and I remember leaving that detention center several times with my mind made up that I would never go back to this thing again, ever. I, I, I had no control over what my future looked like in terms of legal problems because I still had to face them. But I knew that I was going to help myself and never drink and do drugs. And I'll tell you, there was a time when I had a scheduled sentence and they let me out at 8 a.m. when my sentence was over. I had promised that that was the final time. And by 9 a.m., I had landed on the other side of town, and I was banging on the door of a liquor store, telling them that their sign says they open at 9. And so in one hour, with nobody around me, nobody to please, nobody to make promises to, my mind went from, I'm never doing this again, to I, I, my mind wasn't there. <laughs> I'm yeah. beating on the door saying, give me more alcohol. And you're right that what follows that is, what the heck is wrong with me? Yeah. Why can't I get this? And that's what keeps people sick, and that's what kills people, because we have a world that collectively still throws these ideas around that if you, we just don't 
want the pain and the suffering. Yeah. We just don't do the drug or drink. And so that's a huge part of my book. So anyone who wants to relate or, you know, understand like what's going on in, in my mind at that time that maybe yeah. they could connect to that book is, it talks about that over and over. Yeah. Well, and you have to find another way and that's what you did and it takes time. And I think that's a huge piece of it that we do things for a reason. We don't, you know, nobody wakes up and says, well, I think I'll be a heroin addict because it's just super fun. We, you know, many of us are treating PTSD or we think that this is somehow helping. And so you can't just quit without another plan. And that's an important piece of it. And in addiction, and maybe you can speak to this, we don't always look at that where, you know, if we're going to diet, well, what's your replacement food? Or, you know, whereas with addiction, it's like, if you don't stop, you must just not want it bad enough. And it's a lot. I don't want to act like it's the most complicated thing in the world, but it's more complicated than that, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm just relating so much with what you're saying, so I really appreciate this. I think, again, like, what I, what I didn't understand about this thing is it, because we have a world, again, we're getting better, but a world that still collectively says, well, it's pretty simple. You just stop doing the things that are causing you the pain. And so you're right. There isn't this thought that, well, I need to do something different. And we talk yeah. about treatment and all those things, you know, but it, it, it really isn't as simple. And the, the thing that I say about this disease of addiction what you were alluding to here is it's to me, it is the most baffling condition I've ever seen or experienced or been around. And, and I'll say that I'll say it this way, because if you think about the other diseases and other conditions that people deal with you know, in terms of health and, and mental health and emotional, typically we go to take cancer. For example, my aunt has cancer, stage four cancer. Now, she was diagnosed five years ago terminally and she went to the doctor and they said here's the thing you have this type of cancer there's nothing you can do but you can extend your life and here's how yeah. you do this treatment every three weeks you take this medication will bounce you around to different experimental treatments and you could probably live a while or six years later and here she's still living yeah. they do that when it comes to addiction where the only, this is the only disease where where I might stop and say, mm, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I might have a different way of doing this. I, you know, our brains really convince us that we might have a better option than what the experts tell us. And I don't know where else in, in medicine and in modern healthcare that we see it to the extent that we do with addiction. So you're right. It, it's baffling. And it's because there's this psychological component that has us thinking in a, in a very distorted yeah. way. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, we say, well, what causes addiction? Is it genetic? Yes. Is it psychological? Yes. Is it social? Yes. And it's all of those things. Is it spiritual? 
Yes. <laughs> you know, and so it and it just depends on the person. You know, for you, there was some genetics and there was some trauma and it sounds like there was some underlying mental health stuff. And so it's kind of looking at each person individually and getting people in for good assessments and things like that and kind of figuring out which which one is it for you and how can we work together to help you with this. And so there isn't like a one size fits all type of treatment. It's it really just depends on the person. You know, I look at for for me, uh, you know, my brother died of alcoholism. My grandfather died of alcohol related disorders. My uncle died, you know, so and, and then I grew up in Alaska where everybody drank and smoked pot. And and then there was some early trauma. And then I was dyslexic and I had poor self-esteem and I grew up in a codependent family. And and so you kind of look at all those things together and could understand where it was just, the, you know, it was kind of the perfect storm but it's in sort of figuring out what it is for that person and how to best help them as opposed to kind of this turnkey, you know, like one size, one size fits all um, recovery. And I think we're better understanding that now. Yeah, I think it, I think we're, we've come a long way and certainly in the last few decades, you know, addiction and treatment for addiction is becoming much more normalized. Um, but you know, you're right. And I was actually thinking about this. I was at a retreat and it was one of the anonymous programs and it's where I really grew up and found recovery. And then I really added to my life with a whole bunch of other, uh, external uh, dimensions of wellness, mm -hmm. if you will. But one of the things that, um, I was thinking about as I was, we were reading through this book that was written almost a hundred years ago and hasn't changed, you know, at all. It, it became very clear to me that the, the effectiveness of some of these things has gone down because it, we are starting to see that there's so much more and there's not just one way. What yeah, was yeah. the way a hundred years ago for a, a subset of people does not account for the last hundred years and the different mixes of things that have happened and the different discoveries, you know, from a science perspective and the mental health and how that's just grown to be so much more prevalent. So it, there isn't a, a one size fits all. And, and I always encourage people to use all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Find out which ones work, what, what works. And, you know, I use yeah. uh, tools from many different arenas in this addiction treatment space. And, and that's what I think we all need to do a little bit of. Yeah, well, and we do here at the Life Change Center, opioid treatment, medication assisted treatment. And yep. you are lucky you know, you got sober before the fentanyl thing because people don't know what they're getting. They think, you know, and it's, you can't even get heroin anymore. It's fentanyl and they're overdosing quickly oftentimes within like someone came in, been using fentanyl three months and had already overdosed. It is crazy. So we're seeing the drug landscape and then, then there's car fentanyl. And now have you heard about this trank stuff? It's like mm -hmm. eating people up from the inside. So yep. now I feel like we're going from drugs to poison. It's crazy. So now we've got, we need medication for this and medical and doctors. And so it's, I mean, I guess on the one hand, it's kind of forcing everything to integrate. I mean, we're in a, we're in a crazy time. It, it really is scary seeing the numbers and the, you know, 
the tranks, you know, they've hit Minnesota now and it, it's mm-hmm. getting on everyone's radar and it, it, the, the fatality of the things that we put in our bodies now are so much different than even 12 years ago, 12 and a half when, when I went to treatment. So I am very fortunate and I came from a rural area. So, you know, we had a close tight knit group of people, but it, I don't know if I would have survived in today's world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the good news is there's lots of great treatments out there. There's lots of great medications too for detox and withdrawal and all those sorts of things. So you go through this, you, it sounds like you got sober pretty quick, like you, you started early and quit early, which was good. So it sounds like you just did this kind of, like you spiraled down pretty quick. Do you think that was helpful for you to, you know, it was almost like you, you started and then by 23, you were already homeless or however long you were. So it was kind of like a, like a hard, fast run, it sounds like. Yeah, I point that out often when I share that I'm so grateful it it did go that fast. I went from, you know, this little broken child to to ingesting some of these drugs and alcohol and after I got past the sensitivity and the sickness, I latched on and never stopped and and for all those years all I could do was everything that was in front of me as often as possible. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how my story went and I did progress by the time I was 17 homeless didn't have anything no job no car and that was the majority of the next seven years and so by the time I got to the jail cell for the last time I was out of ideas I was out of hope I didn't have any energy to live anymore Mm -hmm. and I think that perfect it took all that to make me willing and open enough to be accepting of this treatment and I see people spread that same kind of damage and use over decades, you know, yeah, many decades. Yeah. And so I'm so grateful that, you know, while my body was still young, my brain was still a little bit, <laughs> could repair it, that I did mm-hmm. all that at such a young age. I fell hard and fast, uh, but it gave me the opportunity to turn things around pretty quickly. Were you in, what was treatment like for you? Were you in like an inpatient type of a treatment center? Yeah, I was in a residential inpatient mm-hmm. for, 30 days and mm-hmm. again so the context that it came from jail so i was grateful to be let out because honestly i'd been on the run with felony warrants for about a year and i thought they were going to keep me at a prison sentence over my head was on felony probation mm. and had got and gotten in a lot of trouble 11 yeah. probation violations that they'd slapped me with and so they let me out so i was so grateful that they transferred me i had to go back when i was done as the was the agreement but when I got there, and again, then this grandma thing happened, and it landed me in a chapel, and I started doing this prayer thing, and I, there was something about that 30 days when I didn't have a single thing to my name that made me as happy as I've ever been in my life. And I, people call it the pink cloud or the treatment high. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily look at it that way. I think it was just a one of the first times in my life that. I was actually being honest and mm-hmm. trying yeah. to live the right way and do what I thought my my th- th- this power wanted me to be doing, and it just it it lit me up. They had to <laughs> lock the door, not lock it, but they had to force me into my room at night, and I was the first one out in the morning. I'd sleep for six hours, and I would just be running around, grateful as heck, sharing all the candy I could with other people, and I just I was so excited that. Um, I was experiencing this this feeling, so it was a great experience. 
That's awesome. So you get sober, go back out in the world. What was life like after that? You know, for me, it took me another 10 years of on and off. There were times of happiness and times of misery because I hadn't dealt with a lot of my other issues, <laughs> which for me was just a lot of sort of codependency issues, stuffing feelings, not standing up for myself, just problems, <laughs> relationship problems, you know, and then, and then a lot of times they say, you know, you take the, the substance away from the addict and you get a codependent, <laughs> you know, or you get a this or you get a that, you know, and I don't want to say that everybody has some kind of underlying disorder because that's not always the case. A lot of times it is. Did you find, you know, you got sober, you got some time and a whole bunch of other stuff came up? Yeah. It, so I, when I left treatment, I went to about five months of uh, medium intensity. So halfway house, we used to call them up here and just mm -hmm. kind of where I could come yeah. and go a little more. And, yeah. and from there, I didn't have a place to go. So my recovery sponsor and his wife said, why don't you come live with us until you can get on your feet? And, and that's what I did. And even though I didn't want to, I just couldn't get a place to rent to me because I had this financial and criminal history. So I, I shack up there for four or five months and then I finally get somebody to accept me and you know essentially produce a waiver that allowed me to to rent an apartment I had enrolled in school again and mm -hmm. quit my job that I had had over the summer and then was told yeah it's probably time to get your own place and and so I about nine ten months into this recovery thing now i'm left with these bills and these new responsibilities and i'm not in the comfort of a bunch of other people who are doing this and by myself and the thoughts started coming and it was not pretty and almost a year into recovery i was again thinking about i, I feel like there are only two options either i'm going to go back to to using and drinking or i'm going to I'm going to end this life of mine because I can't, mm. I don't want to keep feeling these feelings and experiencing these thoughts. And so I got in touch with the guy who started to work through some stuff with me again. And, you know, we, we cleaned up everything we could in terms of my past and tried to live um, really by the principle of service. So helping other people. And then within the next year or two, I went back and I, I did some mental health therapy because I realized mm -hmm. There was a lot of other stuff that was creating anxiety and that it just was kind of uncontrollable. So yeah. I went to this therapist and that's where I started discovering, oh man, I was bring I was bringing myself into this world with all these different things and I never really dealt with them. I didn't even know what they were, but I got through about a year of that and some medications and I really started to stabilize and, you know, it's a consistent thing. I still, to this day need to continue to look at mental health, emotional health, spiritual health. I have some of those conditions that are just there. Anxiety, yeah. um, it can come, it can come and go. And, um, so I, I'm always dealing with that, but there was that significant period from year one till about year three where I did some real digging and it was hard. They, like I said, had to be medicated to be able to tackle those things, but I'm so grateful I did because they really, I don't know what life would be like without having done that work. Yeah, that's important. I mean, there was a time I had to be on medication too as well, and there's no shame in that. We got, we're trying to stabilize our brain, and there can be chemical imbalances and all sorts of things. So it's super important to, you know, get 
the type of treatment that we need. And it's like a lifelong journey. And I know for me, accepting that is kind of a big deal. You know, there there's that piece of just accepting because I can look at other people and go, wow, they just seem to have it all figured out, you know? And, and whereas my husband or I are like, wow, you know, we're still struggling with this. I like, and I'm 50, you know? And then I just have to accept that piece. That's just the way it is. And that can be really helpful in just understanding this is how my brain works. These are my struggles. Sometimes you just got to roll with it because you can't change it, you know? Yeah. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I've done, I like, I'm very interested in human behavior and the way that we mm. think and, and the way that we behave in this world. And so I've done a lot of study, uh, inside that space and kind of self-development. And it's when you mention I, I smiled there, you'd mentioned or you, you have a certain kind of way of living and then you look at other people and it seems like they don't, you know, I always, that's a, as a kid, I just wanted to have everything all the other kids had. Yeah. As, yeah. as a, as an adult, I looked at everyone around me and I said, I just wish I could live in their shoes. And I tell you, I did this weekend seminar once and it was a wide variety of people, not from recovery. There were some from recovery, but it was across the board, business people, um, everyday people, people from recovery. And we all started to share stories and there were about five different stories that were pretty unique. One girl got up there and she was talking about being raped as a child and how that, you know, shaped the way that she viewed the world. And then there was someone like me who talked about losing my dad and addiction. And then there was someone who said, yeah, I got a D on my third grade test. And from then on, I felt like I was less than everyone else. And so it just became very clear to me that yeah, that's a human thing that we walk around with, you know, that yeah. everybody else is a little bit better off. And um, it's been good to learn that and understand and accept that, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll to some extent always feel like I'm less than, but we're all kind of walking different walks and struggling with something along the way. Yeah, well, and the self-esteem piece is it's so rampant for everybody, but particularly for those that struggle with addiction and it's hard when you don't even know then you know then you know that everyone else knows then you go through that period where that that's what i went through but there is something that's sort of self-focused about it all and i think when we can learn to just get out of that kind of get out of ourself and and walk into a room and go well, everybody else kind of feels stupid too so you know maybe i can just figure out how i can lend to the situation or help the situation or help the person or be be a helper and that can you know that whole concept of giving back can really and i think that's why service is so important it kind of gets us out of ourself because even the self-pity and the self-esteem can still be self-focused you know yeah i like uh jody we should have probably known each other a long time ago because <laughs> you just keep speaking my language here or yeah. I'm speaking yours or whatever but that's precisely how how i really found another level of wellness in this world was mm -hmm. thinking about how i got back into yeah. the world and gave back and, and my mentors early on said this is not about you getting well and then you continuing to think about what you're this is once you get to this place and you are in a better place it's about getting out there and showing others that there's a different kind of world and 
I remember going to service commitments. We used to go to these hospitals and I put on these events for kids who had cancer. And, mm. and it just was, I could be on the way to this event, losing my mind about my job, good paying, nice job, and, and, and just everything that's wrong with my job and oh, my car and I had these bills, all the things that I only could have dreamed about having before. But I get into this self-pity like you're talking. Yeah. And then I go into this hospital and I see these little kids running around with the biggest smiles on their faces. Some of them might be, you know, terminal and they know it and they're still as happy as can be. And every time I would walk away thinking, I, my bit, I got no business being anything but satisfied with my life because it's, it is a good, it's a good life that I think I just get caught up in some of the negativity because that's my brain. That's the way it's wired sometimes. But. Yeah. And, and gratitude and stuff is huge. I think that's why they talk about it so much in recovery, particularly because I think my brain was wired like yours too, where I always say, well, the glass wasn't half empty. There was just nothing in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it was just empty, you know? And so I started practicing gratitude and that changed my life. Like that was absolutely life changing because I did have this negative bent where, you know, and I had that like imposter syndrome. Everyone's going to hate me. They're all going to laugh at me. What am I doing here? The worst case scenario is always going to happen. And so practicing what I was grateful for was huge, but then also kind of really analyzing my thinking, right? Like what's true and what's not. That catastrophe thinking that the addicted brain tends to jump to is totally irrational. You know, did you find you had that too? where you know and then you have to look at look and go and and figure out like is that really true <laughs> like is the worst thing gonna happen sometimes it does but most of the time all this crap we think is going to happen doesn't and it's that thinking pattern that then spirals the relapse and you know what i mean so sometimes we do it to ourselves the, the whole stinking thinking did you find you had to do a lot of work on changing your thought patterns and um, practicing gratitude and all those sorts of things? Yeah, again, this is right up my alley, especially when I was in the halfway house. I just remember going through some of the different therapies and modalities that they were using there. Mm -hmm. not, not just catastrophic, catastrophic thinking, but I always thought that everything, like, if somebody said something or did something or they walked a certain kind of way, they must be mad at me or they must, I must have done something wrong. I'm it's gonna all be in about trouble. me. Yeah. 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 They're, they're talking uh, about me. The clothes, the door is closed. So the boss is clearly discussing me. That's how I was too. I'm like, Oh, oh my, my gosh. gosh. So yeah, it took a lot of work on that, but I'll tell you, you know, I always preach three. I, I have preached and I don't mean in any kind of way, but just that I like to talk about, a few things, this spirituality, this generosity that we just talked about service and gratitude and gratitude saves the day so many yeah. times. I, and it was intuitive to some extent. And I lost the opportunity to get a job back. I only worked there for two months before the overdose and it didn't happen and it crushed me and I was in treatment and I wanted to leave and I thought maybe I would end up using. And somehow I put the pen to paper and I just started writing what are the things you still do have, even if you didn't have this job? And the next thing I knew, I had created my first gratitude list. And I was <laughs> like, I feel different here somehow, you yeah. know? And so yeah. 
that gratitude is something every day I practice. Every day, the first thing I do in the morning is journal about the things I'm grateful for, my intentions, and throughout the day, I'm sharing with, and you know what? It's sharing with the people. That's what I, it was a huge exercise for me. Not only just to be grateful and to journal about it, but these people that I'm grateful for, the things I'm grateful for, I'm going to tell them and I'm going to put some substance behind that about why it is that I'm grateful, what they mean to me. And that exercise, I did it for like a month straight with two or three people a day. Not only did it make me feel incredible, but then the messages I would get in return were like just as, you know, gratifying and and full of gratitude. So, yeah. Yeah. The thinking piece is huge, you know, in therapy, they call it negative effect because, you know, they have to make it sound uh, therapeutic, but, you know, negative emotions are the number one cause of, of one of the number one causes of use and, and, and relapse and, and even, and that's not to suggest that there isn't clinical depression. There is and bipolar and things like that. I mean, when I, but what I went through, a depressive thing where I was kind of like what you were talking about, almost suicidal. The the hope in that was, wait a minute, there's help. Like I could get help. I could go see a therapist. I could work through this. Like just knowing that that was the gratitude piece of like knowing that there is help available. Because it, it, a lot of people, we come to a point in our life where we may need that. We may need to take things to the next level and get that clinical help. And knowing that's available, knowing there's medication available, not that everyone needs it, can can be can add to that gratitude, you know. Talk to me about so what's what's what are some of the work that you're doing now? Are you working in treatment? Are you working for a treatment center as well? I know you're doing public speaking and writing and things like that. Yeah, so I work um, I oversee really the um, administrative operations for an addiction treatment organization that's really mm-hmm. on its way to kind of nationwide expansion, mostly delivering uh, peer recovery coaching. And so that mm-hmm. that peer service that allows people who've been there to connect to the people who need the help, we found it's such an effective use of, of, of resources and, you know, oftentimes allows people who aren't willing to accept an assessment or treatment of, of another level to just mm-hmm. connect with someone and say, hey, let's just talk about where we are, you know. So that that is a, um, a digital healthcare startup, and um, it's, been a, it's been a great ride there. We've been going, I've been with them for a little under a year. They've been going for a year and a half, and we're very well established. Um, so that's the day work I get to do. You know, as you mentioned, and I've mentioned, I published a book, so I like to do writing. I like to get out and speak. I also have a couple small businesses one is i I do consulting for healthcare Mm -hmm. organizations to just kind of operationalize some of their um, duties and and really streamline revenue things like that and then i also own a a recovery housing organization we have two recovery homes for uh, women and that allows them to pair that setting with typically an outpatient level of care uh, but just gives people a safe place to to kind of come together and live and make sure that they can get up and get the treatment and have all that that added support that you get with a kind of the communal living there and you know i i just i also have the opportunity to work at a at a state level legislatively to I'm part of i'm the vice president of our trade association in minnesota for substance use disorder programs and you know that allows me to 
to rub elbows with people at the state level and our, mm-hmm. our legislative folks to really make a dramatic change in the industry. Um, it's very needed. And more than anything, the, the work that I think I'd love to do more than any is, is what we're doing here today. I get to sit and, and connect with people who've, you know, been down this path or who might need to be down this path and, and just experience, you know, that interaction about life and wellness and recovery and struggles and, you know, all the things. So That's awesome. I love all the stuff you're doing. I know I'm doing a lot of stuff too. It took some time. I think one of the things I talk about a lot that's important in recovery is aftercare. Like, what do we do now? Which I think is huge. And then also the leadership piece that we miss. You know, if you're sponsoring someone, you're a leader. Like, there's a huge yeah. piece of that. I feel like that sometimes is missing where, okay, so now I'm sober. Now what? How do I go back into the world? How do I deal with bosses? How do I deal with people? How do I deal with, you know, how do I ask for a raise? <laughs> you know, how do I do all that stuff? You know, I, I think that is an important piece. Did you have help navigating that? That That's some of the work that I want to do because I got an MA in leadership a while back. But prior to that, like I was the worst, like I never dealt with any of my self-esteem issues and I'm in this corporate world and I couldn't even play the game until I got that degree. I couldn't see myself as a leader. I couldn't, I, I mean, I, I just didn't, you know, and I, and it's took me years and, it, and, and I look at a lot of the stuff like that we learn in recovery and then, you know, by the time we're older, you know, realizing that hey, we can help people shorten this process so they don't have to like be miserable for 10 years in the corporate world because they just didn't know how to deal with, you know. Yeah, you know, one of the things I was very fortunate to drop into a group of men and really some women in that group in recovery that were all about how are we going to make a difference for other people. And so that was Mm -hmm. kind of my starting point. I knew that if I wanted a meaningful life, at least a life like those that I saw around me, that I should follow those footsteps and figure out how to give back. But then to your point, how the heck do I even do that? And I was a <laughs> yeah. couple years into my recovery when I got connected with a, a life coach and we dove hard into values and truly understanding what are my greatest values? What mm-hmm. are those things that are not negotiable for me? And I think that was really the springboard for me to say, as I navigate this corporate world and and dealing with people and all the things that we get to do in this industry, all the things that are hard and challenging and tiring, because that's what happens in this kind of work. There are lots of good things too, but all those scenarios for me, I get to go back to what are my values and does Mm. this align with my values? So it makes harder conversations easier you know if i have to coach somebody and i have to share with somebody that this isn't where we're trying to go and this doesn't align i get to go back to my values and and that is really service is one of my number one values and if what i'm trying to do is make a difference for other people then it it allows me to have some of those harder conversations and i also did i I do a lot of studying here's the thing Mm -hmm. you have an ma and we're also so fortunate in this world today that we can find so many materials and courses and content of like solid leaders in, in what they provide because this World Wide Web has exploded that it's out there. And I've done so much of that developmental uh, 
leadership skills, all that type of studying on my own. Now that takes a lot of, you know, motivation and like discipline to be able to do that. But I, I, again, that allowed me to, to be in space with other leaders. And guess what I do today? I do what I did early on. I get in the room and say, if I don't know, I don't know, but I can see some smart people around me that do. So show me how, right. And then just continuing to remain open has, has allowed me to grow so, so much. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's just in realizing that these are, it's just a process. This is the, the process of it. And if you, if you get sober and then you're, you're struggling with these other things, it's kind of normal. You don't have to beat yourself up because you're afraid of your boss or you can't ask for, you know, like all these things, like we just need help along the way. I don't think we're meant to sort of navigate all this, you know, all these things by ourselves. you know, um, well, thank you so much, Jason, for coming on, for sharing your story, for sharing your expertise, for just being real and vulnerable. It's been really cool. Tell us about uh, the book. Yeah, the book, I actually copy right here. It's on um, Amazon. And again, a perfect tragedy really comes from that story about my grandma and just kind yeah. of realizing that it was a very tragic moment that could have pushed me one way or the other. Thankfully, I was in treatment, still kind of property, if you will, of the jail. And and it pushed me in, in the right direction. So while it was a tragedy, it was that was kind of what it was going to take. Because I think if I would have, even if they would have let me out of uh, jail, and or out, it, I go from the hospital then to jail and they let me out, mm-hmm. I don't think I had the tools or the wherewithal to get this thing, but that tragedy really propelled me. And so it, finding purpose in pain, loss, and addiction, it's like I grew up with that pain. I lost too many people and didn't have that chance. And then the addiction, they, they all about killed me. But through learning about all that and getting through on the other side of this recovery thing, I found a purpose that I, that wakes me up and drives me every day. And that's the book is what we've been talking about here from the yeah. time I, I can f- have my first memory as an infant all the way through um, 36 years old, just about six months ago. And it really just as raw and vulnerable as possible outlines all those thought processes I uh, talked about in terms of my childhood, how bad the addiction was and what my thinking was like and just the way that I felt. And it's just getting very, very detailed in terms of this is what it's like to live in this. And, and of course, 12 years of this is how I've done it. And, you know, it's been such a fabulous project for me because something I always wanted to do, but you know, I had a couple audiences in mind when I wrote it, obviously the the people who might be struggling with what we once struggled with and still sometimes do. Um, Then also this group of people that might just have this misconception for no other reason than they don't know. People that look at addiction and say, just don't do it. If you don't want the pain, just don't pick up the the bottle. And I'll tell you the feedback I've gotten from people about that has been so incredibly powerful. People that's completely changed the way that they view others in their lives and, and just yeah. in general. And, you know, it's it's been so great. So it's, it's raw, it's real, it's as authentic as you're gonna get. It's probably more vulnerable than even these types of settings that I've shared in. So it's it's all there and um, really just, uh, 
shows kind of the progression into addiction through it and then out the other side and recovery. I love the name too, finding purpose in pain, loss and addiction. We have to find purpose in life. Otherwise it there's no I mean it makes no sense. It's once we find that purpose we didn't we then we can find healing, which is a whole nother <laughs> topic that we could talk about for <laughs> you know, yeah. but yeah, finding that finding that purpose, like what what makes me tick How, what am i meant to live for is humongous and is a huge replacement for the addiction and i think that's lacking in our world today to even reflect and and search for that purpose it's so important jason any um words of uh parting words for those listening still struggling with addiction any last words of wisdom <laughs> yeah I, you know they kept telling me early in recovery don't quit until the miracle happens and i thought you guys are crazy what is the miracle <laughs> and when is it going to happen because i'm just over here struggling to go day to day right and they kept saying it and for some reason when all my roommates would go home to hang with their friends and their family i knew that wasn't going to be good for me to do on the weekends i stayed there i sat with these people and the miracle happened and my my words of wisdom always are that it is literally right around the corner and we just never know what day it's going to yeah. be we're always one day away from that miracle actually happening and so it's just about hanging on long enough to let the miracle happen because it's there and i promise if someone like me who had the the problems i had and walked into treatment with a laundry basket that was broken full of dirty clothes <laughs> that was my what was in my name and if yeah. i can be where i'm at today this thing is for anyone and you know if you have a hard time believing if anyone has a hard time believing that it's possible because that was me i was two months into treatment and i still didn't understand how this life without drugs and alcohol could be possible but what I did understand is that the people who were saying it was, they weren't lying. And so if you can do anything, just believe that what I'm saying is truth for me. And that might be enough to hang on to, to, to find truth for, for you. So it's, it's, um, that's, my, that's my last parting words. And, <laughs> that's you know. awesome. Believe that we believe. All yeah. right. So <laughs> um, right. spell your name, your website, how people can get in touch with you for the book, speaking, things like that. Yeah, it's, it's all on the website. It's great. Name is Jason Lennox, um, J-A-S-O-N-L-E-N-N-O-X. And it's, it's www.jasonlennox.com. Speaking on that is the you know the book, all kinds of information about that, how you can get a hold of me, some of the consulting. I would love to connect I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, and um, I just love to to build my network and and grow uh, the number of people that I get to interact with and, and build the community together. So thank you very much for having me and for everyone who's listening. Maybe took something away here. Awesome. Jason, thanks for your vulnerability and thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Jody. Thank you so much, friends, for listening to Genuine Life Recovery, playing on your favorite app or on my website at jodystevens.org. It's J-O-D-I-E-S-T-E-V-E-N-S, jodystevens.org. There you can check out my podcast, blog, recovery coaching info, speaking, and more. Check it out.